Howdy everybody. The following is a recorded discussion of a Republic Keepers educational class with Chaplain Raymond, our Attorney General for the Republic State of Texas. We've been discussing Authority of Law, um, a book by Charles A. Wiseman, also called The Authority of Law. Today we're in, on pages 61 through the end of a court case that we've been discussing in the past few days, which went to page 65. Hope you enjoy. All right, today is March 10th, 2011. We're continuing in our Authority of Law course by Charles Wiseman. We're on page 61 of the book, but we're on page 13 of the Minnesota uh, model paragraph court case. All right, we're starting with section 7. Established Rules of Constitutional Construction. Excuse me. The issue of subject matter jurisdiction for this case thus squarely rests upon certain provisions of the Constitution of Minnesota 1857 to wit. Article 4, Section 13. The style of all laws of this state shall be, be it enacted by the legislature of the state of Minnesota. Article 4, Section 27, no law shall embrace more than one subject which shall be in its title. These provisions are not in the least ambiguous or susceptible to any other interpretation than their plain and apparent meaning. The Supreme Court of Montana, in construing such provisions, said that they were, quote, so plainly and clearly expressed and are so entirely free from ambiguity, unquote, that, quote, there is nothing for the court to construe, unquote. Vaughan and Ragsdale Company versus the State Board of Equity. The Supreme Court of Minnesota stated how these provisions are to be construed when it was considering the meaning of another provision under the legislative department. In treating of constitutional provisions, we believe in the general rule among courts to regard them as mandatory and not to leave it to the will or pleasure of a legislature to obey or disregard them. Where the language of the Constitution is plain, we are not permitted to indulge in speculation concerning its meaning, nor whether it is embodiment of great wisdom. The rule with reference to constitutional construction is also well stated by Johnson in J. in the case of Newell v. People in 7th New York. It follows, if the words embody a definite meaning, which involves no absurdity and no contradiction between different parts of the same writing, then that meaning apparent upon the face of the instrument is the one which alone we are at liberty to say was intended to be conveyed. In such a case, there is no room for construction. 
that which the words declare is the meaning of the instrument, and neither courts nor legislatures have the right to add to or take away from that meaning. It must be very plain, nay, absolutely certain, that the people did not intend what the language they employed in its natural signification imports. Before a court will feel itself at liberty to depart from the plain reading of a constitutional provision. It is certain that the plain and apparent language of these constitutional provisions are not followed in the public as the Minnesota statutes, which contain no titles and no enacting clauses. And thus, it is not and cannot be used as the law of this state under our Constitution. No language could be plainer or clearer than that used in Article 4, Section 13, and Section 27 of our Constitution. There is no room for construction. The contents of these provisions were written in ordinary language, making their meaning self-evident, as said by the Supreme Court of Minnesota, in construing a provision of our Constitution, however, we are governed by certain well-established rules. Foremost among these is the rule where the language Foremost among these is the rule that where the language used is clear, explicit, and unambiguous, the language of the provision itself is the best evidence of the intention of the framers of the Constitution. If the language is free from obscurity, the courts must give it the ordinary meaning of the words used. No matter how much the courts of this state have relied upon and used the publication entitled Minnesota Statutes as being law, that use can never be regarded as an exception to the Constitution. To support this publication as law, it must be said that it is absolutely certain that the framers of the Constitution did not intend for titles and enacting clauses to be printed and published with all laws, but, they, but that they did intend for them to be all stripped away and concealed from the public view when a compilation of statutes is made. Such an absurdity will gain the support or respect of no one, nor can it be speculated that a revised statute publication, which dispenses with all titles and enacting clauses, must be allowed under the Constitution as it is more practical and convenient than the session law publication. The use of such speculation or desired exceptions can never be used in construing such plain and unambiguous provisions. The general rule of law is when a statute or constitution is plain and unambiguous, the court is not permitted to indulge in speculation concerning its meaning, nor whether it is the embodiment of great wisdom. A constitution is intended to be framed in brief 
and precise language. It is not within the province of the court to read an exception in the Constitution which the framers thereof did not see fit to act, enact therein. This is, of course, note that this is, of course, no need for construction or interpretation of these provisions as they have been adjudicated upon, especially those dealing with the use of an enacting clause. The Supreme Court of Minnesota has made it clear that Article 4, Section 13 of our Constitution is mandatory and that a statute with out and enacting clauses void. Being that the statutes used against me are without enacting clauses and titles, they are void, which means there is no offense, no valid complaints, and thus no subject matter jurisdiction. The provisions requiring an enacting clause and one subject titles were adhered to with the publication known as the Session Law and general laws for the state of Minnesota. But because certain people in government thought that they could devise a more convenient way of doing things without regard for provisions of the state constitution, they devised the contrivance known as the Minnesota Statutes and then held it out to the public as being law. This, of course, was fraud subversion and a great deception upon the people of this state which is now revealed and exposed. There is no justification for deviating from or violating a written constitution. The Minnesota statute cannot be used as law like the session laws were once used solely because the circumstances have changed and we now have more laws to deal with. It cannot be said that the use and need of revised statutes without titles and enacting clauses must be justified due to expediency. New circumstances or needs do not change the meaning of constitutions as Judge Cooley expressed. A constitution is not to be made to mean one thing at one time and another at some subsequent time when the circumstances may have so changed as perhaps to make a different rule in the case seem desirable. A principal share of the benefit expected from written constitutions would be lost if the rules they established were so flexible as to bend to circumstances or be modified by public opinion. A court or legislature which should allow a change in public sentiment to influence it in giving to a, to a written constitution a construction not warranted by the intention of its founders would be justly chargeable with reckless disregard of official oath and public duty. And if its course could become a precedent, these interests, instruments would be of little avail. What a court is to do, therefore, is to declare the law as written. There's a great deal of danger in looking beyond the Constitution itself to ascertain its meaning and rule for government. 
Looking at the Constitution alone, it is not at all possible to find support for the idea that the publication called the Minnesota Statutes is valid law of this state. The original intent of Article 4, Section 13, and Section 27 of the Constitution cannot be stretched to cover their use as such. These provisions can now not cannot now be regarded as antiquated, unnecessary, or of little importance, since no section of a constitution should be considered superfluous. That's in Butler Taconite versus Romer. The constitution was written and circumstances because it embodies fundamental principles which do not change with time. Judges are not to consider the political or economic impact that might ensue from upholding the Constitution as written. They are to uphold it no matter what may result, as their ancient maxim of all law states, though the heavens may fall, let justice be done. Now, we're into the motion part. It was the memorandum of law. Based upon the above memorandum, the accused moves that this action and cause be dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. A court lacking jurisdiction cannot render judgment, but must dismiss the cause at any stage of the proceedings in which it becomes apparent the jurisdiction is lacking. This is United States versus Seviglia, 686 Fed 2nd, 832, 835, 1981. Nothing can be regarded as a law in this state which fails to conform to the constitutional prerequisites which call for an enacting clause entitled. There is nothing in the complaints which can be constitutionally be regarded as laws, and thus there is nothing in them which I am answerable for or which can be charged against me. Since there are no valid or constitutional laws charged against me, there are no crimes that exist. Consequently, there is no subject matter jurisdiction by which I can be tried in the above-named court. Now, a caveat for all. I regard it as just as necessary to give fair warning to this court of the consequences of its failure to follow the Constitution of Minnesota and uphold its oath and duty in this matter, being that it can result in this court committing acts of treason, usurpation, and tyranny. Such trespasses would be clearly evident to the public, especially in the light of clear and unambiguous provisions of the Constitution that are involved here which leave no room for construction, and in light of the numerous adjudication upon, upon them as herein stated. The possible breaches of law that may result by this motion are enumerated as follows. One. The failure to uphold these clear and plain provisions of our Constitution cannot be regarded 
as mere error in judgment, but deliberate usurpation. Usurpation is defined as unauthorized, arbitrary assumption and exercise of power. While error is only voidable, such usurpation is void. The boundary between an error in judgment and the usurpation of judicial power is this. The former is reversible by an appellate court and is, therefore, only voidable, which the latter is a nullity. To take jurisdiction, to take jurisdiction where it clearly does not exist is usurpation and no one is bound to follow acts of usurpation, and in fact it is a duty of citizens to disregard and disobey them since they are void and unenforceable. No authority need be cited for the proposition that when a court lacks jurisdiction, any judgment rendered by it is void and unenforceable. The fact that the minister so the state statutes have been in use for over 40 years cannot be held as a justification to continue to usurp power and set aside the constitutional provisions which are contrary to such usurpation as Judge Cooley stated. Acquiescence for no length of time can legalize a clear usurpation of power where the people have plainly expressed their will in the Constitution. Number two, to assume jurisdiction in this case would result in treason. Chief Justice John Marshall once stated, we, judges, have no more right to decline the existent exercise of jurisdiction which is given than to usurp that which is not given. The one or the other would be treason to the Constitution. The judge of this court took an oath to uphold and support the Constitution of Minnesota, and his blatant disregard of that obligation and allegiance can only result in an act of treason. If this court departs from the clear meaning of the Constitution, it will be regarded as a blatant act of tyranny. Any exercise of power which is done without the support of law or beyond what the law allows is tyranny. It has been said with much truth, where the law ends, tyranny begins. It's quoted from Merritt v. Welsh, 104 U.S. in 1881. The law, the Constitution, does not allow laws to exist without titles or enacting clauses. To go beyond that and allow the Minnesota statutes to exist as law is nothing but tyranny. Tyranny and despotism exist where the will and pleasure of those in government is followed rather than the established law. It has been repeatedly said and affirmed as, most, as a most basic principle of our government that this is a government of laws and not of men, and that there is no arbitrary power located in any individual or body of individuals. 
The Constitution requires that all laws have enacting clauses and titles. If these clear and unambiguous provisions of the state constitution can be disregarded, then we no longer have a constitution in this state, and we no longer live under a government of laws, but a government of men. That is, a system that is governed by the arbitrary will of those in office. The creation of the Minnesota statutes is a typical example of the arbitrary acts of government which can become all too prevalent in this century. Its use as law is a nullity under our Constitution. This is dated February 26, 1996, by John R. Smith in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This concludes the case study. I'm going to take a breath. I hear silence. Are you asking for questions? Well, comments. Okay. Uh, the use of the asterisk as a punctuation tool, triple asterisk as a punctuation tool, is that common to law papers? Uh, yes, when you're trying to not burden it with other information. But if you feel necessary to fill them out, do it completely. Put the whole thing in. The important thing is the site. If it's something somebody wants to debate, they go to the site and read it for themselves anyway. Um, there is the possibility of taking all these and putting them into an ordered list of sites so that you have a table of authorities which could accompany it if you wished. But this is just a motion. Um, it's not a brief. Well, you know that last the last paragraph, if these clear and unambiguous provisions of the state constitution can be disregarded, then we no longer have a constitution in this state, and we no longer live under a government of laws, etc. We must not forget that what brought all this about was the fact that that very court in that very state was trying to cram down his throat their interpretation no, not their interpretation. We're well, trying to enforce, uh, I don't dare say illegalist to you. I have to find a better word to put this, but the words actually contradict the facts. The words in that paragraph contradict the facts, or it's stating a variable fact. Variable for produce, those who don't. Variable produce, for those. Your, produce your sites. We'll be glad to review it. You're saying that this man is wrong? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. You're saying I'm he's saying right. That what he has written is correct. The statement that I read is 
what makes it possible for a constitution to say one thing as the framers of that constitution wanted it to be and as the public voted on it to be law or ratified it and then something follows later like what the state created pertaining to the laws of how to operate vehicles, what you're required to have in order to operate a vehicle, including the insurance and everything else, and he was being charged with all these crimes. Well, now, didn't no. that exist? Does, does that exist or not? Now, what is it called in the eyes of the public who read and see these acts? It's his failure of the press to communicate. They manipulate perceptions. The people, did you need to, um, who is accountable for this problem? The people who sit down and decided to prepare the statutes, why did they do such a thing? Why did they feel they had to leave these things out? Just, just to explain what these refer to. The statutes. Why did they have to leave the enacting clause and the titles out? Well, why couldn't they put them in? Uh, I give up. Uh, you're on another topic. No, I'm trying to. You want to blame somebody for this? No, I'm not blaming. I'm saying the public. The public, they see, they see, they, they see they're being charged with a traffic violation. And yet this paragraph simply says, we no longer have a constitution in this state if this stuff is disregarded. And there is the guy sitting in his car watching a traffic officer try to, try to write him off for everything that they can possibly get. And well, fact, does anybody realize. Does anybody understand what he's trying to say? Yes, I do. Say it. He's saying that the uh, statutes are in conflict with the Constitution, and he wants to know why that the corporate state can get away with that. And it's not hard to figure it out. The corporate state can get away with that because no one studies the Constitution. No one very few people understand what the Constitution says, so the corporate state writes the rules and regulations within their power to write rules and regulations as operating in commerce. And the people don't understand that they're not operating in commerce, that they're operating as free men with a free right. And that's very how they away with it. Very eloquently said, but I was trying to avoid saying it that way because I'm trying to trap him and admitting something. Why do you need to trap somebody when you're using the Constitution? I, I'm sorry. Are you trying to trap me into saying? Yes, I am trying to trap you into saying. What are you trying to say? What you want me to say? Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll That's, say it. That lawyers practice deception deliberately for tax purposes or for money purposes and they get away with it. You mean that man has evil in his soul? <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, Any word no. outside the Constitution has been. Oh, meaning. no. <laughs> it, 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 it has to be. You know, I, I, I accept certain things as just there, and um, the issue is that they got control of ancillary activities, let's say public education. And by getting control of public education, they can leave out what they shouldn't be teaching or what, I'm sorry, let me start again. They can leave out what they should be teaching lawyers. This stuff that, I'm, that we are studying surprises lawyers. Are you assuming that the lawyers know this and deliberately well, ignore it? To the contrary, they haven't been taught it. In fact, and we have a friend in California who has a course which he teaches called the 42 Laws They Don't Teach in Law School. Hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it is the more of, a, of an organized um, and um, it, it, they go back three layers, you know, and influence it way back there. They, and that's what they've been doing with our children since the Second World War, deciding the things that are best not to teach them. Otherwise, we may not be able to do what we want to do. And as luck would have it, there were men of goodwill who would persist. And many have gone to prison to make this information available to us. And yet the rules they could not tamper with because they needed them to maintain control of their power. I see. Okay, I get your point. Actually, you said it all when you made the sarcastic remark a while back about the existence of evil living side by side with truth. That image created the mental understanding that I was able to grasp. But the, the the real, I don't have, I went through school assuming none of this kind of shenanigan existed. I got good grades and I proceeded to good jobs and never once was I exposed to it. Until one day, I did something out of expedience and I, I held something in my hand for 15 minutes. Well, it went through my bank account and into somebody else's, and they came back at me and said, that was wrong. And then that gave them the license to look at everything else, and because it was commercial and negotiable, which I didn't understand, they could change the terms and conditions, and it was dependent upon my attitude. I sit down and I said, you know, I went to the RS code and I tried to figure out how to compute how to compute the uh, taxes 
not the taxes, the penalties and interests. And I could not figure it out. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and yet they insisted. Finally, nothing else. I didn't have time to fool with it. I, it wasn't a, it wasn't a large that large amount. So I sit down and I said, "Okay, what do you need me to do?" And they said, "Please settle." And guess what they did? They wrote me a letter and said the following: "Please to please come to a closing." Hmm. I didn't. It didn't dawn on me that what those words meant. Please come to a closing in such and such a place, which I did. And I signed on the dotted line, and it was called a closing agreement. So I walk out there in contract with the national government. It didn't matter what the IRS code said. It only mattered what was on those pieces of paper. Well... I didn't know that. I go and I sit down with a friend and I said, help me here. I need to really understand, you know, because I was dealing with people that had tax problems and needed, they always come to me for little hints and helps. And I said, I don't, I want to know and understand what's going on here. So he got out a copy called the Annotated Internal Revenue Code. Wow. And he got it out, and the annotated code lists the history of each section in, in footnotes. You know, this one came in to the code in 1973, and it was modified in 78. So the annotations give you the whole legislative history. So he said, now what's the number of that site uh, on that penalty that they're charging right there? And I gave him the site, and he says, for what taxable year? And I told him. He said, oh, um, that wasn't law yet. <laughs> I said, what? That hadn't been passed as law. Now, we're looking at code, you understand, treating it as law. And, that, and so the number said, this wasn't even the law at the time. And I said, okay, well, here's the next one. A single site for penalties and interests that more than doubled my tax bill were in effect for the taxable years for which this was, to, this was being done for. I didn't know any different. I understood I'd signed a closing agreement. So I said, well, you know, that when there's mistakes in a contract, you can void it and send it back to have it corrected. So I called their attention to the fact that these sections hadn't been made law yet, and I voided the contract expecting them to send me a new one. Instead, they sent their... Enforcers. They never did send me a new contract. All they, I was thinking, well, all they'll do is correct it, change the numbers to fit the facts, you know, the the, his, the legislative history here, and 
will thou know what I need to come up with to pay them off? But they never once came back. They just screamed and yelled at me the one phone call. You can't do that. Well, I didn't know it was commercial. I didn't know it didn't matter whether that, what they called law was law. It just meant it only mattered whether I agreed to it or not. Hmm. Now, how do you teach people that? Once that happened to me, I said, you know, there's a lot i got to learn here. There's something going on that I don't understand. They come to cars. It was just one of those really, really great experiences to, you know, and I'd point the Marines defending this thing. I had lots of mixed emotions. And it was all due to our education. As I, the, um, we probably need to get the recording off. I probably told too much of a story there. Okay. You want me to go ahead and turn it off? Well, let's see if there's any comments or questions that need to be on. Okay. Well, I'll wait. All right. Go ahead and shut down.